There are many Christians who've thought there is life out there and many Christians who thought God's only created life here. And that's what makes the science of going out and looking so much more fascinating is that we now have another tool to go out and explore that. We can look at scripture, we can think philosophically, but now we can actually go out and look scientifically and see if we have any evidence for that. And if we found life, that would just be an incredible discovery. And if we don't find life, that would be a pretty remarkable discovery as well. Established in Mountain View, California in November of 1984, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, or SETI, is the only privately funded nonprofit organization in the world solely devoted to searching for and studying life and intelligence beyond Earth. SETI became a household name through its public promotion by the late planetary astronomer and science popularizer Dr. Carl Sagan. In late 2020, for the first time in the organization's history, SETI partnered with the National Radio Astronomy Observatory site in Socorro, New Mexico, to begin searching for extraterrestrial technosignatures using the Socorro site's very large array of 27 radio telescopes. The 27 telescopes are wired together to act as one large telescope, which scans the heavens 24 hours a day, seven days a week, looking for any kind of radio or other technological signatures that might indicate the existence of life in the universe. Since SETI's inception nearly 40 years ago, however, there has been no discovery, no sign, signal, or any evidence of extraterrestrial life. SETI scientists tell us they have just barely scratched the surface of the cosmos in all their searching. The universe, of course, is vast, filled with an uncountable multitude of stars. But in the event they finally discover an unmistakable alien broadcast from a remote corner of the cosmos, they perpetually keep champagne on ice. In Carl Sagan and Andrew Yin's 1997 film Contact, that momentous occasion is dramatically portrayed through the astronomer protagonist Ellie Arroway, played by Jodie Foster. Foster's character is modeled after the SETI's first director, Dr. Jill Tarter, whom I had the privilege of meeting in San Francisco several years ago at a breakfast discussion about exoplanets. Before the breakfast began, I just so happened to be reading a copy of Contact when Dr. Tarter came over to me and introduced herself. It wasn't until later I discovered she was the inspiration for the character of Ellie Arroway. Contact is also dedicated to Sagan's daughter, Sasha, whom I also had the privilege of interviewing just a few years ago for our Atheist and Christian Book Club. A link to the full interview with Sasha can be found in the notes of this episode.
Though the very large array mentioned just a few moments ago is featured in the film Contact, SETI had never made use of the telescope until late 2020. Of course, the drama in Contact centers upon Arroway discovering an unmistakable alien signal. Now what? What are the implications? What might it mean for traditional religious faiths if intelligent life exists elsewhere in the cosmos? Has God created life elsewhere, or is life in the cosmos limited to just Earth? There is a surprising exchange near the middle of the novel where Arroway is asked if she is a Christian. She replies, quote, I'm a Christian in the sense that I find Jesus Christ to be an admirable historical figure. I think the Sermon on the Mount is one of the greatest ethical statements and one of the best speeches in history. I think that love your enemy might even be the long shot solution to the problem of nuclear war. I wish he was alive today. It would benefit everybody on the planet. But I think Jesus was only a man, a great man, a brave man, a man with insight into unpopular truths. But I don't think he was God, or the Son of God, or the grandnephew of God. End quote. In a fictional work about contact with extraterrestrial life, I find it fascinating that Sagan is able to so masterfully weave Jesus into the story. During my interview with Sasha, I learned how her nanny used to take her to church every Sunday and how religion was freely discussed in the Sagan household. And I have always said to people who ask me what I think about alien life that if aliens ever did show up here and I had the opportunity, I too would mention Jesus to them and ask them the same question Jesus asks his disciples. Who do you say that Jesus is? But that is not just a question for extraterrestrials. It is the most important question for any of us here on Earth. Who do you say Jesus is? The good news is that Jesus is indeed God, and he is alive today. His grace, his mercy, his love, and his forgiveness of sin does indeed wondrously benefit anyone who comes to him. If there are other forms of life out there in the universe somewhere, the Lord Jesus Christ has created them. Finding extraterrestrial life poses no threat to the Christian faith. As Colossians 1.16 says, quote, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. End quote. From the humblest bacteria to the most erudite genius to the most distant galaxy, Jesus is creator and Lord of all. As you may already know, we here at Watchman Fellowship produce two podcasts Apologetics Profile and Good Heavens. Every once in a while, we create combined episodes for both podcasts, and this is one of those broadcasts. We thought this topic would be of great interest to both audiences. For the next two episodes of Good Heavens and Apologetics Profile, we talk with resident cosmologist of Reasons to Believe, Dr. Jeff Swearing, about his 2017 book, Is There Life Out There? Jeff makes a good case for the specialness of our planets and of human beings in the universe. He outlines just what it would take for life to exist elsewhere in the cosmos and suggests reasons for why we have yet to discover life beyond Earth. 
As we begin part one, I ask Jeff that since there is no solid evidence of extraterrestrial life, either from science or in the pages of scripture, why he thinks we are, as a culture, continually talking about the possibility. Here is Dr. Jeff Swearing. You know, I, I've thought a little bit about that. And as I was preparing for writing the book, one of the things that I did was I just found a book that talked about where can, you know, that documented various places where people were talking about ideas like this. And what I found is that you can find people thousands of years ago, predating Christ's, Christ walking on the earth, that were talking about whether... Earth is the only place where there's life or whether there's life somewhere else out there. And what I've, what I would uh, say is that I think that's just a natural part of who God has created us to be, that he has created this incredibly vast, incredibly large uh, universe that has a whole bunch of stuff going on in it. That is just fascinating that we're just beginning in the last few hundred years to really understand at some level but one of the questions that we naturally ask is, what's our place? What, why are we here? What's in this universe? And I think the idea of, are we alone, is a natural consequence of asking that question. Uh, you know, I, I would argue that God has created us to know him. And if he's out there, maybe he's maybe there's other life out there that we might interact with. So I think it's just a natural part of who we are. In fact, I, I kind of jokingly mentioned that it wouldn't surprise me if we go back to the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve were talking about whether there's life out there. It just seems like it's a fundamental part of who we are to think about, are we the only people? And what would that look like if there were others out there? Hmm. That's fascinating. I think, uh, what you just said reminded me of uh, David in Psalm 8, um, when he says, When I consider thy heavens, the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou dost take care of him? And it, it seems like at that moment you could probably think about David contemplating the same question, you know, what is man? And by extension, uh, would there be anything like us out there? Uh, beyond who we are. Um, I know you don't really talk about it in your book, but uh, I know people have, have tried to go back into the Old Testament, and uh, especially with the Nephilim, and these kind of creatures we don't get a whole lot of descriptions about, uh, as positing the, the perhaps one source of uh, what, what people have popularly called ancient aliens. Um, just briefly, I would just wanted to get your. We have audience that is interested in this question. I briefly just wanted to get your thought on that question. We don't have to spend a whole lot of time on it. Uh, what do you think about the uh, the ancient alien theory? You know, I think uh, to me the ancient alien theory is just as improbable as the current alien theory um, in our culture today. I mean, you just look at all the movies that are out there, and space travel and aliens just pervade our science fiction and what we think about, but you just can't get around the difficulties of traveling across the universe. And I, you know, I, I've learned not to bet against humanity in terms of the technology we're going to develop, but the 
challenge of moving across the universe is daunting to say the least. And the idea that that would just be show up just a few thousand years ago, just in old times and not, it, it just kind of, it to me borders on incredulous to think that that's the way things happened. If, if aliens are traveling around, we would see pretty pervasive evidence of them. The fact that we don't see any evidence aligns with very well with the notion that traveling across our universe is just an incredibly difficult pers- thing from a how much energy does it take perspective, from the danger of traveling across the universe perspective, and from the can you can beings actually travel that because the time scales involved in traveling across the universe are pretty large. Uh, even if you're traveling at something akin to the speed of light, which is mm. again, very, very difficult to do. Right. I thought you, you'd mentioned uh, growing up with the original star Wars and that was my childhood as well. And uh, I remember sitting in enraptured in the theater looking at Luke on Tatooine uh, watching a double sunrise, um, which we now know in 1977. I don't know what the uh, status of of uh, cosmology was in terms of relation of binary stars. I, I know um, uh, uh, William Herschel and his sister Caroline were the first to sort of discover and catalog these binary stars. So we've known they've existed for a while, but now, um, as you outline in your book, um, we have discovered exoplanets that actually inhabit a binary or a trinary uh, star system, or even more than that, I've heard. So it, it seems like, to some degree, uh, fiction has met reality, but but uh, you go into detail about uh, what's the possibility of, of planets being habitable with, uh, with binary star systems, something that we can talk about in a minute. But I want to sort of stay on the question of uh, science fiction, because you brought something up uh, with... In the Star Wars imagery, not just Luke on Tatooine with uh, double suns, but uh, Han Solo and the uh, train wreck of a Millennium Falcon that you, anybody wonders how in the world does this thing stay together, um, traveling through the asteroid field or something. But but you point out in what you just said in relation to what you just said, that space travel, intergalactic travel, um, would be very dangerous, not because there are these giant asteroid fields and we have to dodge these things that are larger than mountains or small planets, but grain, grains of sand, something as small as a grain of sand, if you're moving at, a, at, at the speed of light, could could shred a spacecraft, right? Could you talk a little bit about that? That was fascinating. Well, and it's one of those things that when you, you – you can just, with some pretty introductory level physics, kind of ask the question, just how much energy are we talking about here? And I think I go through and do a calculation where if you take – you know, go out and you throw a baseball – you know, it's it has something on the order of a few joules worth of energy. If you go to a major league pitcher throwing at 90, 90 to 100 miles an hour, you get up, I think it's like 44 joules of energy, something on that range. But if you now take that same baseball and have it move at a tenth the speed of light, which is the sort of velocities you're going to need to be able to travel in any sort of realistic way between stars, that same baseball that when I threw it had, you know, a a few tens of joules now has 65 trillion joules of energy. Why that's interesting. One is that the, you know, as the velocity goes up, the amount of energy goes up as the square of that. And so the faster, faster you go, it really just grows faster. But now flip that around say, okay, I'm in a spacecraft traveling at very close to the speed of light or a 10th the speed of light. 
And I happened to run into a grain of sand or a, a dust molecule or a, a, a grain of dust out there. That grain of dust is not moving very fast. My ship is moving very fast. So the, the relative velocity between them is close to a tenth the speed of light. So that grain of sand now hits your ship with trillions of joules of energy. Mm. And there's not a lot of them out there, but space is very large and you're traversing a large distance. So now as you're traveling across space, you either have to have a way of detecting all of these grains of sand and grains of dust or finding a way to deflect that incredible amount of energy. And that's not a small amount of energy. I mean, that's, that's a, akin to the amount of energy that the United States produces in a day. I mean, that, that's the scale of how much energy you're talking about there. So that to me just kind of put a little bit of tangibility to the challenges of traveling across space. Uh, you know, even if you could find a way to achieve these incredible speeds, there's a great peril just in, am I going to run into something that'll rip my ship apart? Mm. And, and I would take it that uh, the Apollo program and all the subsequent space shuttle programs have taken into consideration space debris and uh, projectiles and dust mites that might destroy the ship. But is, is, the, is the problem lessened because uh, the spaceships that we're designing to go to the moon and stay in Earth orbit uh, not moving fast enough to create damage? Or how did, uh, how did NASA deal with this problem? Do you know? So there's two aspects, and you're right. One aspect is they're just traveling at much slower speeds. So they're moving fast compared to what we do here on Earth, but compared to the speed of light, they're just paltry in comparison. I mean, these same ships traveling across interstellar space would take 80,000 years to get to the next star, whereas if you're traveling at a tenth of speed of light, it's on the order of 40 years. So, you know, it's just traveling much, much slower. That does a lot to reduce the amount of damage that can occur. But the other thing we do is we try and keep track of all the space dust up there and space debris around our local areas so that we can avoid it. And we do, our, our ships are just kind of built to tolerate some of that damage. But again, because we're traveling at such lower velocities, it's more surface damage rather than this particle tearing through the internal part of your ship. Right. So when Han Solo and company jump to light speed, uh, they really need to be worried about uh, sand-grained dust particles because those those could be <laughs> quite fatal. It's not uh, – I've heard it said – I was talking to Brother Guy Consolmagno, who's uh, the Vatican astronomer and, and studies meteorites, and he said the asteroid belt picture that we get from science fiction is not the least bit accurate. Um, it's out there, but it's not quite accurate. But if you're traveling through space at a high rate of speed, as you said, uh, this is – potentially problematic for any intergalactic uh, interstellar travel uh, that one has to consider, even if you're an advanced alien race, uh, mm -hmm. whatever the case may be, you're still dealing with phys the physicality of getting matter to move at the speed of light. Uh, as you say, the square, the, the energy increase just seems incredibly improbable. But um, I thought I'd ask you, in, in relation to... Um, whether it's ancient aliens, uh, the idea there seems to be that uh, older civilizations could not have achieved the kind of uh, things that they did uh, without the assistance of higher intelligence. But be, be, because we're presuming, we're just presuming that that our our forefathers, our ancestors, uh, could not have had the technical prowess 
to build the structures that they built. So they must have had some kind of intelligent assistance. I, I also see that the issue could be one of um, if if evolution were true from a naturalistic perspective, and we have all these exoplanets in just the last thirty years. As you point out, we're what is it like five or six thousand known exoplanets? Uh, many of them are Earth-like, or they we are told we can talk about Earth-like in just a minute. But how, Jeff, do you think that uh, a naturalistic evolutionary construct of uh, life in the universe has contributed? to our idea about alien life in the cosmos? That's an interesting question because what I have found is that naturalism as a worldview is, I think it's a relatively recent phenomenon, not that there weren't probably naturalists throughout history, but in terms of most of the writings out there, they do take place in the context of a religious worldview where there's some something higher, there's more than just the natural stuff of the world. And you find that pervading all of those thoughts are just lots of thoughts about alien or, you know, whether there's life out there. And so I don't, I don't know that naturalism per se has played into it. It does kind of have this flavor today or this idea that, well, now that we're finding planets, we can start talking about whether there's life out there. And if we find life, that will be a validation of the naturalistic worldview because even though life seems incredibly rare or weird or bizarre or whatever fine-tuned, whatever term you want to put onto it, if we find life out there, that just shows that where life can exist, it just naturally arises. And that that provides a good way to think about things in terms of understanding the world. Uh, again, what I have found and one of the great encouragements to me was to recognize that long before science ever even began to have a say in this discussion, Christians had been thinking about this for centuries, if not millennia. So I think there's this idea that life, you know, finding life out there just is part of the naturalistic way of looking at things. But I think that's an assumption that gets smuggled into the discussion rather than actually being that naturalism is a better way to talk about there being life out in the universe. Gotcha. Gotcha. I've heard Richard Dawkins talk about what he calls planetary possibilities. So mm -hmm. it's it's kind of what you've just said, the idea that because we now know exponentially in the just the last, uh, what is it, since the mid-90s, exponentially our knowledge of, of extrasolar planets has increased in manifold ways, uh, but now we have what he calls these planetary possibilities, uh, it would be impious to assume or prejudiced to assume, as you point out in your book, uh, that we are the sole life forms in the cosmos. Um, and that seems to be the, the, the arguments that I've heard that, uh, I mean, this was Carl Sagan's uh, thought. He was uh, the, the proponent who got SETI going, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. But Sagan was also careful to point out that up until that point, there was no um, no empirical evidence for science for for aliens. But uh, nonetheless, with the vastness of the universe being what it is, he saw he thought to he he thought that it would be foolish not to look for um, extraterrestrials. Do you think our earliest Christian thinkers, um, if they were with us today, would in, would encourage a search like SETI? for extraterrestrials or are we stepping a little bit beyond the bounds of a sovereign creator in in poking our nose into the cosmos in this way what do you think the early christians would have thought about our actually physically spending money and time and in intelligence and resources in looking for aliens what do you think 
Well, I find the the discussion between Kepler and Galileo instructive in this discussion. Yes. Kepler and Galileo, two very devout Christians um, who were intensely interested in studying the creation and figuring out what we can learn about it. And so I think think you can make a strong case that the reason why science – developed and flourished as it has over the last few hundred years is because of the influence of the Judeo-Christian worldview. And so this idea of exploring and knowing what's out there flows very readily from the idea that God has revealed himself in scripture. Every Christian thinks that, but God has also revealed himself in creation. And if he's revealed himself in his creation, we ought to go out and explore because as we understand that creation, we'll get to know who God is better. And so I think, you know, the idea that somehow Christians would say, oh, we shouldn't waste money or go do that out there. That's like saying, well, we shouldn't spend time developing seminaries so that people can study scripture. It's like it's important to study God's revelation. That's his revelation in scripture and his revelation in creation. So, so now you go to uh, the dis- or I don't know their discussion between Galileo and Copernic or Kepler, but both of them are sitting there talking. Here you've got Galileo, again a devout Christian, who's saying, you know what, God has only created life here on Earth, and he had his reasons for thinking that. But he was saying, okay, you know, given all that we know, there's only going to be life here on Earth, and that that seems to parallel a lot of what the popular opinion or popular perception of Christian thought is today. But on the flip side, Kepler was saying, you know, we're discovering all of these bodies. We've got planets out there, planets with moons. And he thought God had created life on all of these objects. You know, and so if there's a body out there, there's life on it that God has created for it. So here you have these two devout Christians who really come to a different perspective on that. And I find that that really mirrors what's going on today. I find Christians, you know, I, I will, in most of my talks where I'm doing this, and then and they're, you know, in the let's if I just restrict myself to the ones that are dominantly Christians, I ask people before I give the talk, you know, how many people think there's life out there, you know, and I and or I tell them I'm going to do that, and so I ask how many think there's life out there, and how many think there are, and how many want me to tell you the answer to the question, and almost invariably. There's about a third that think there's life out there. There's a third that think there isn't life out there. And then there's a third that kind of want me to give the answer to that. And I would be really surprised if you go back to the ancient Christians, the ancient uh, uh, Jews and, and Hebrews and ask them, do you think there's life out there? And that you're going to find a fair number that think God created life out there and a fair number that think God only created life here and a fair number that just don't know the answer. I don't think this is a new phenomenon. I think the history, as I have seen it and studied it, of thoughts about life out there is that there are many Christians who've thought there is life out there and many Christians who thought God's only created life here. And that's what makes the science of going out and looking so much more fascinating is that we now have another tool to go out and explore that. We can look at scripture we can think philosophically, but now we can actually go out and look scientifically and see if we have any evidence for that. And if we found life, that would just be an incredible discovery. And if we don't find life, that would be a pretty remarkable discovery as well. Yeah, whether we are alone or whether there is even something like small bacteria or some kind of uh, biological life somewhere in the remotest corners of the universe. I find it interesting, Jeff, you bring up a point um, about significance and uh, you hear this a lot. 
uh, from the secular side of things, when we look at the size of the cosmos, and this is Carl Sagan, uh, Valentine's Day of 1990, he had convinced NASA to turn Voyager's cameras around and take one last family portrait of our little world. Uh, not just Earth, but all the planets. And every every planet, even Jupiter and especially ourselves, were just this tiny little pixel, uh, literally, uh, hanging there in the void of space. Uh, if you want to call it the void of space. It's just nothing around it. And, um, you know, Sagan was careful in his uh, Cornell lecture just a couple of years before he passed away. He was careful to tell people at Cornell when he was giving a public lecture on these images uh, that the sunbeam... Uh, in which Voyager captured the Earth, that famous image of the pale blue dot, was an accident of optics. <laughs> he, 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 it was funny how he emphasized this. This is not, doesn't mean we're special uh, or anything like that. But he was, he was really a proponent of de-emphasizing our specialness uh, in the cosmos. And it seemed to be predicated upon this idea that because the universe is so vast, that somehow in the bigger scheme of things, Jeff, that human beings are fundamentally insignificant. But I find a flip side of this to be really interesting. If, as you just said, we were to find any kind of life outside of Earth, that would be the most significant discovery in all of scientific history. We would celebrate this as a unique and special, uh, significant discovery. So here we are telling ourselves we're not significant, but then we find bacteria on a distant planet and we say, well, look at how significant this is. So, <laughs> so I was wondering if you could, from from your perspective as a cosmologist and a Christian, address this issue of, it seems to be a non sequitur, Jeff, and maybe I'm reading it wrong, but when people talk about insignificance, I can't just look at something size-wise and determine that I'm significant based on my size in relation to the rest of the cosmos. But it seems like to talk about human significance is something far more than just a scientific observation. There seems to be a philosophical assumption in that. And uh, I think that the difference is that not seeing ourselves as being created in the image of God uh, and just uh, sort of happens to happenstance accidents uh, here in the cosmos, that seems to be the issue. Um, and maybe you can talk about it. What's your experience in, in addressing that question? No, I think that's an important recognition to have as we seem to have, or at least in my interactions with the naturalistic worldview, there's this wrestling with this tension that at the end of the day, in a naturalistic worldview, you know, if Carl Sagan was correct, you know, the, this universe, the physical stuff is all there is, was, or ever will be. That anything beyond just the physical stuff is, it's just, it's not there. And that's all that really is. But yet when we look and we, as humans, we're kind of, drawn to talk about things in terms of meaning and significance and importance and value. And that's a statement that doesn't apply to physical stuff. I mean, the, the things that have value are imbued by something outside of the stuff, if you will. I mean, everything in the universe, everything on the planet Earth here is made up of the same set of elements that were formed in the stars uh, you know that have that have are that are ultimately came before our sun, but yet some of this stuff I put great value on, and other stuff I will just throw away. That it's not the physical material that determines whether something's valuable or not. It's something else, and you know I would I place great value 
on the hamburger that comes in my order and very little value on the wrapper that goes around it. I throw the wrapper away and I eat the hamburger. So, I mean, I, as a person can, it's all atoms, it's carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen, but on some I give value and others I don't. Well, in Christianity, that makes great sense because our value is not our physical stuff or whatever. It's our value is we're created in God's image, that God is what determines and gives and provides value, if you will. And so nothing that's that's a great relief to me because that means that nothing I do, you know, every person is valuable simply because they're a human person, because they're created in God's image. Now, if you go from a naturalistic worldview, you've got to wrestle with why are certain why do we have this idea that certain things are valuable and certain things aren't? And how do we ground that well? And you know, this plays into this discussion. And, and to, to me, it seems an odd discussion because we're saying there is no value. That, you know, everything is just the physical stuff. But yet here we are talking about why was Carl Sagan so interested in telling people about what we found and why it was important if ultimately at the end of the day, you know, give it maybe a couple hundred thousand years and we're all just going to be turned back into dust and irrelevant. It's, it seems in naturalism, that's an odd mix of we see these things that have value. We instinctively or intuitively know things have value, but ultimately it's all just physical stuff and has no value. It, it seems a tension in a naturalistic worldview that in a Christian worldview, it just, it makes sense why we talk about things that way. One of the things that I wrestle with or, or, you know, as I, I think about and try and understand, why do we have value if all the stuff is just the, or why do we talk about value as that being important if the physical stuff is all there is? Right. A great point, Jeff. Um, it brings to mind what uh, C.S. Lewis said about, uh, um, I think it's in Mere Christianity, where he talks about uh, if if I try to fit in, and I'm paraphrasing him, if I try to fit in the materialistic perspective that we're just... Uh, Bertrand Russell said this, we're all just an accidental collocation of atoms where we are reduced to our smallest quantum constituents, then you can't not only, can you not only fit in, uh, have you, you have no ability to fit in science, you can't fit in anything because it's all just a matter of how your atoms are arranged versus how my atoms are arranged. Um, and there's, there's no real concrete objectivity to the value question. Uh, that you address in naturalism. Um, I was discoursing with, I, I'm a member of an atheist book club here in Dallas, great group of people. They, they, I'm the only Christian in the, in the club. And we had a really robust discussion about, uh, about physicality, physics, and uh, emergent properties in quantum particles and consciousness and all of this stuff and free will. And it was a great discussion. Um, but uh, the, the point came up about making, uh, about objective value whether it's in morality or things that we value, um, people were advocating that uh, uh, morals are subjective. But I said, if if it's all just a matter of reductive quantum emergence, where our rationality and our consciousness and our morality are just really reduced to to an arrangement of chemicals or an arrangement of physical particles, then there's nothing that you can say that is objectively true about value at all. It's just an aesthetic choice my molecules versus your molecules. And I think you, you, you pointed out well there that the, the, the tension in naturalism to try to assign value to something uh, at the same time um, without any sort of foundation for where that value is coming from 
is a conundrum for um, for naturalism. So yeah, I think that answers it well. Anything to to add to that? I think we are. I think that the bigger cosmological picture from what I would call secular cosmology, Jeff, uh, especially when it's popularized in folks like Sean Carroll or Neil deGrasse Tyson or or you name it, what, what, what the popular handbooks out there are on uh, cosmology, all do speak to this reductive insignificance. I've, I've read it a thousand times if I've read it once. Um, and so the concern for me has always been that, that though by and large the large percentage of the population in it isn't interested in big cosmology uh, the the popular level rhetoric that we are getting from big science is that we have we are insignificant and they struggle to articulate why we would be significant turn around and say well why are we significant here if we're not significant in the cosmos and i think that as a culture that's what we're suffering from systemically is is that sense of insignificance and um the, the, the tragic implications for looking up into the heavens, seeing the beautiful arrangement and thinking it's all just an accident and I don't have a purpose in belonging here. I think that's disorienting. Um, and I think, do you think that's what we're struggling with, Jeff, in, in some sense that there's a top-down kind of secular influence from the sciences that, that are repeatedly telling us this? Um, and it's not just aliens here, but just a matter of what it means to be human in the midst of this uh, otherwise celestial void of gas and dust. You know, I do think there is a, that, that is a significant component of the trajectory that we have been on. I, I just look at what evangelism looked like over the last 30, 40 years. Because when I, when I was in college, I was involved with Campus Crusade, which is now crew. You know, one of the things we do is just go out and talk to people on the campus and try and tell them, you know, share the gospel with them. And what I noticed at the time was that most of the time sharing the gospel was, do you know what the scripture has to say? That there was a general sense that the scripture, or the Bible was a, a good piece of literature. It was true and correct and something worth listening to. Well, nowadays that has changed to um, a lot of people don't think the Bible has anything worth that it that it's not something worth listening to, and they have a very remark or a increasingly small knowledge of it. I mean, the idea of you know go back thirty years and people in jeopardy not knowing what uh, something in the Bible had to say was almost a ludicrous idea, and now you get things like the Lord's Prayer that most people don't know. And so it, again, it's just a a piece of data that shows that our our knowledge of the Bible, not just our knowledge, but our culturally our idea of how significant or important what scripture has to say is has dramatically declined and it does seem to me when you look at what the you know the scientific data shows that kids especially tend to see things in terms of purpose and teleology and there's this disconnect if naturalism is true there is no purpose there is no teleology but yet we're kind of wired to see things that way. And so there's this, I think you, you said it well, there's this disconnect of we think that we we intuitively know there's purpose and value in things, but yet we're increasingly told there isn't. And then what do we do with all that? Do we just reject everything that we've been taught? Are we skeptical about everything? Do we not trust everything? Those don't, those, that way of thinking doesn't make for a good society because a lot of society relies on relationships and good relationships 
are built on trust and value and these things that we're being told don't exist. So I think there's a lot to that. And I would also say another thing that is coming into play there, you know, there's the do things have value, but there's another aspect of a naturalistic worldview pervading how we think about things in the popular culture. And, and I, th- I think C.S. Lewis said it well, and if you if you allow me, I'll just read his quote. He's talking about this idea that naturalism and materialism is just all there is. He goes, if the solar system was brought about by an accidental collision, you know, that just it's the matter moving around, then the appearance of organic life on this planet was an accident, was also an accident, and the whole evolution of humanity was an accident too. If so, then all our present thoughts are mere accidents, the accidental byproduct of the movement of atoms. And this holds for the thoughts of the materialists and astronomers, as well as for anyone else. But if their thoughts of materialism and astronomy are merely accidental byproducts, why should we believe them to be true? I see no reason for believing that one accident, the thoughts of my mind, should give me a correct account of all the other accidents. If naturalism is true, why should we trust what our mind is thinking about trying to understand what's going on out there? And so this is, again, just another place where I think Christianity answers this question, because my mind is not just an accident. My mind is made in God's image. That's why I can trust what's going on in my mind. But I don't see the naturalist has a good answer for that, even in the midst of going out and searching for life out in the universe. Okay. Yeah, I I love that C.S. Lewis quote. Um, And that seems to be the the gist of of the um, epistemic epistemic tension of our ontology if you will uh that uh what i've heard from some of the some of the more permanent minds in this on the secular side of things is that uh, dawkins has said it that design everything looks like it's designed but that's an illusion uh purpose is an illusion if you are an if you are a physicist who believes in emergent properties from particles consciousness is an illusion of some kind of fundamental physical force so you're told that in principle, everything looks designed, everything seems like it has a purpose. I feel like there's more to it than just my matter and energy, but I'm being told by science it's all an illusion. And um, I just wonder how that is contributing to to the demise of our culture. I know the statistic, uh, especially through the pandemic, over 40,000 people a year in the United States alone take their own lives. And you just wonder, what are the stories behind these people? And that, that, that's enough people to fill the Bush Stadium in St. Louis, the baseball stadium. I mean, it's, right. it's, it's, it's awful and it's tragic. And you just wonder how, if you could have listened to these people's stories, at the back of every one of them would have probably been this desperate hopelessness that, mm. that, that pervades their lives. And it's not just circumstance, but at, at root, as, as you struggle through evil trials and tribulations in this world uh if if you're utterly alone and none of this means anything it just it just doesn't seem to be a coping mechanism for how you how you process through these things so i think there's there's tremendous implication jeff and you've articulated it well about being able to be compassionately understanding and listening to the narratives of these people on the secular side of things in terms of how they process this idea of meaning and significance in the cosmos um, 
And I think in relation to the alien question, which we've kind of gone far afield, but I think it's important. I, I really like where the conversation's been going. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, maybe from the scientific perspective to give some of our listeners some hope um, or if they know somebody that's struggling with these things. Uh, to, to, to interject some really good science, some solidly well-known science that supports the idea that God is a compassionate caregiver who has uh, given us not only this world to live in, uh, but himself through the person of his son. And so let's, I kind of want to switch gears here and maybe build a bridge of encouragement for people uh, of some of the basic scientific precepts that really strongly suggest, or not just suggest, I think they're, they're demonstrative proofs, <laughs> if you will, if you take Romans one twenty, about God's signature on his handiwork. How do we know that uh, this universe is in fact designed and created for a purpose? What are some of the signature, that, where can we begin? Some of the, the simplest signatures of intelligent design uh, from uh, a creator's perspective, because I know you you bring up this argument in the book, this objection that if if the universe was designed for life, it seems that the, the, the vastness of it was unnecessary. It was a waste. I've heard this a lot of times too. Um, but that if 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 it was a waste, then we're we're really talking about God on a budget here. But he wasn't. You know, it wasn't just <laughs> uh, God with a limited amount of material or money or time. Uh, but but it wasn't just for us, but it was also for his glory. So there's an element of that to it. But I thought, let's kind of dig in. And what are some? where would you begin with some basic fundamental precepts from your scientific knowledge that show clearly uh, some of God's invisible attributes? Where can we begin with that? Yeah, I would say one of the things that... I have recognized as I've been doing this is, you know, very often when you're looking at fine tuning, you get into efficiencies and probabilities. And one of the things that I work really hard to keep in mind is that while I do think God is a consummate engineer, he is the best, you know, he is the engineer, the the, the prototype, the archetypical engineer that we're all modeling after. But God is not just an engineer. He's also an artist and many other things. And so uh, just that that argument of the universe is so vast, this seems like such a waste of space. I just think it misses what we value here. I mean, I remember uh, not, well, it's, it's been probably 20 years ago now, there was a, a big artistic display in uh, New York by the Gates Foundation, or I think it was called the Gates. I forget exactly who did it, but it, you know, there's these large orange uh, fabric flags that were flown and decorated around the city. And, uh, you know, I'll just show you my lack of artistic uh, appreciation at times. So kind of, <laughs> honestly, I thought, wow, it kind of makes it look like Home Depot was my original. <laughs> but, you know, here you've got somebody who's, invested enormous resources to develop an artistic look to things that most people don't appreciate or most people don't appreciate and others would say it really doesn't impact their day-to-day life. Does that mean that it's purposeless? No, it's like that's an artist will do things elaborately and articulately and exquisitely in somewhat in ways that may seem wasteful, but but it's because it shows the value of what they're doing. And so when I look at creation, what I see is this, both this artistic and engineering component to creation. And, and where I would see that 
is you just look at the earth itself. The earth has been around for four and a half billion years. It's covered in water. It's got, you know, roughly 30% continents, 70% water on its surface. But when you compare earth today to earth when it first was formed, it is dramatically different. For example, the sun was about 30% dimmer when the earth formed than it is today. So over the last four and a half billion years, the sun's luminosity has steadily been getting brighter and brighter. Now, 1% change in the sun's luminosity, if nothing else changes, is probably adequate to evaporate all of the water on the surface of the earth, you know, if it gets brighter. So here you've got the sun's luminosity going from 30% less than it is today to today's value. The early earth was also... The oceans were not this nice blue look, the, the kinds of oceans we see today. They were actually probably very concentrated in iron. They probably looked more green. And so you've got these radical chemical changes going on on the surface of the earth and in the water and in the atmosphere. You also have tremendous geological changes. We now have, like I said, 30% continents, but when the earth started, it was covered in water. There was no continents and very, you know, even relatively small volcanoes or relatively few volcanoes. So you've got these enormous geophysical processes going on. And on top of that, you've got life at its best when Earth was around early, earliest moments are these simple primitive single-celled organisms. Now you've got this vast, incredibly diverse array of abundant life. And any one of those changes, or any one of those changes, the change in the biology, the change in the geochemistry, or the, you know, the geology, the change in the ocean content, the change in the sun's luminosity, any one of those should have radically changed the habitability of Earth. But in spite of all of those changes, Earth's average temperature has stayed in about a 20 degree Celsius range where liquid water always exists. That to me is an argument that there is a mind behind all this because all of these things were coordinated in a way that they could have catastrophically eliminated Earth's capacity to support life, but yet they happened in this highly integrated, correlated, planned, timed fashion so that Earth remains covered in liquid water throughout its history. And if you think that's not remarkable, just go look at Venus and Mars. Both of them probably started out with the same types of liquid water that Earth had, but very quickly, both of them lost their water catastrophically. And so we just see evidence of this, you know, I, I, I term it a great symphony, God's great symphony, that there's these incredibly powerful instruments at work, but instead of being cacophonous and destructive, they work together to bring, to, to give this incredibly life-supporting earth that we've lived on. That is remarkable that that has played out. And it points to that artistry as well as that engineering that's going on. 